the castle joining us today. We do. Up He's close and personal. To tell you all about toys and friend dogs. Barking at the neighbors. That too. He's got lots of stories, don't you, bud? Good shit. How yeah. are you? How's your week? I'm good. My week's been good. I was on vacation, so... I didn't feel like I was on vacation, though, because I went into work, like, three times, so... <laughs> Basically, like my full work week. Is work, so... <laughs> yeah. You can't really take vacations, at least not stay-at-home vacations, <laughs> without going in. I know. It just sucks, because most of my vacation time ends up being work time. Yeah. At least for me, because... I have a, another podcast with my coworker, and that's the only time because we work opposite shifts to mm-hmm. get together. Yep. It sucks, but it's okay. How was your week? Good. Pretty average of Army this weekend, so I have one day off, regular work. But uh, again, trying to switch from days to nights to days to nights sucks. So, yeah, yeah. they're not really good. I get you. Well, well, we this is our first official episode of uh, our Hollywood series, so... I'm pumped. Are you? Yeah. I'm excited, too. It'll be good. We're realizing today how similar our stories are again, which is cool. Yeah. Kind of, sort of planned, but, like, not... I didn't think they would be this similar. Yeah. I thought that they would just be Hollywood stories <laughs> with murder. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Mine involves murder, yours does not. Or possible murder. Conspiracy of murder. I think it might. Ooh. Okay, well. You are up. I am first. Here. Ooh, Oliver's here. Oh, hi. We can start now. Oliver's here. Ollie. Hi, big guy. Um, I am talking about the life of Lana Turner and the mysterious deaths that surround her. Sick. So, she was born as Julia Jean Turner on February 8th, 1921, which was just over 100 years ago, which I think is crazy. Like, right at. Like, right at 100 yeah. years. That's so crazy to me that she's, that I was, right was going to say that old, but she's not. <laughs> she's dead. Um, some records show that she was born in 1920, but we'll learn that since she was discovered at a young age, um, she admitted to have lied about her year of birth. A lot of people did that. Yeah. It was very common for women yep. in the industry to... It's better to be younger. Yep. Um, or at least look younger. Yep. Um, her parents were John Virgil Turner and Mildred Frances Cohen. John was a miner, which makes sense because Lana was born in Wallace, Idaho, which was a small mining community at the time. Oh, I thought you meant like a child. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> That would have been funny. Like, that makes no sense. <laughs> I but... spelled it, like, M-I-N-O-R. Is oh, that okay. how you spell minor? No. Oh, yeah. So I spelled it wrong anyways. Makes sense, though. Um, Mildred was very young at the time and possibly a minor. She definitely was. She was, um... Do you mean a child or she worked in the mines? <laughs> I'm very confused now. <laughs> She's a child. Okay. <laughs> he is a minor? She's a minor. <laughs> uh, she was 16 when she had Lana. And she was 16, about to turn 17 in four days. So, like, I guess kind of old, but not old. 
That doesn't nope. make any sense. But um, though Lana was born in Wallace, she was raised shortly in Burke, Idaho, and then moved to Wallace in 1925. I guess there was just a really nice hospital there where she was born in. Um, and this is where her father also opened a dry cleaning service while working in the silver mines. And Lana was known to friends as Judy, which I guess is short for Julia. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe they just called her Judy because... I feel like it's short for Judith. That's... That's... Okay. Yeah. That's what I know it as because it's my aunt's name and yeah. her full name's Judith, yeah. but... Don't know. Hmm. I don't know why they called her Judy. People have weird nicknames, you know? Um... As a child, Lana had interest in performing, and she even did dance routines at the Elks chapter in Wallace that her dad was part of. She was just three years old when she did a dance routine at a charity fashion show that her mother was modeling in, and there were some financial issues for the family, and they ended up moving to San Francisco because of the boom of jobs, I guess, back in the day. Um, That was in 1927 when Lana was only six years old. So, in 1927, by the time they had moved to San Francisco, her parents had already separated. I'm assuming she lived with mainly her mother because of the history that I found about her. Lana was baptized as a Protestant at birth, but ended up being temporarily boarded into a Catholic family named the Hislops in Stockton, California. Um, Lana ended up enjoying this because of the ritual practices of the church. When she was seven, her mom gave her permission to convert to Roman Catholicism, where Lana attended the Convent of Immaculate Conception. Um, that was in San Francisco. She originally had the hopes and dreams of becoming a nun. Hmm. So, very big career turn that yeah, she made. the opposite will happen. I know. Um, she found herself growing up with family and friends in order to save her mother money, which makes sense why she was temporarily boarded into that Catholic family. Her mom was working 80 hours a week as a beautician, so she really wasn't home either. Um, they often lived in Sacramento and the San Francisco Bay Area, so basically Northern California. So, she lived for some time in the Modesto area with family that apparently abused her physically and treated her like a servant and some sources said that this is actually a foster family not just family family yeah um but i mean i can see it just being like family is family if it's a foster family or family so Mm -hmm. i can see how that could be confused i guess with sources i don't know which one's right though most of the sources said it was just family They were, Lana and her mom were apparently so short of money that at times Lana recalls living on milk and crackers for a few days. I know. On December 14th of 1930, when Lana was eight, her father won um, money playing a traveling craps game, and apparently he put his winnings in a sock and went to go home. Later that evening, he was found beat to death on the edge of San Francisco's Patero Hill in the Dogpatch District, in which he left... His left shoe and sock were missing, which is where he had hid the money. Fuck. Yeah, so this robbery homicide is still unsolved, but this is the first uh, bad murder that Lana's been included in, unfortunately. She's not included, she's just involved, I guess. It's not like an eight-year-old win stole her dad's winnings, you know? Right. <laughs> um... This event obviously had an effect on Lana. She felt as though she had to grow up fast because of the lack of father in her life, of a father in her life. Um, I don't know how included he was in her life, though, so I don't know. I don't know. 
Still, though, like, losing your dad is losing your dad. Yeah, he's like, there's no chance at all of ever seeing him again versus, well, maybe I'll see him next weekend, you know? So, I feel bad that she had to go through that at such a young age. In the mid-1930s, Mildred developed respiratory problems, and like everybody else we've talked about before that had some type of breathing or lung problems, her doctor told her to seek a drier climate, which they ended up moving to Los Angeles in 1936 because of that. In that same year, when Lana was 15, according to her, she was shopping for a Coke at the Top Top Hat Malt Shop, where she was, quote, discovered. Hmm. This is disputed, though, by her own official website. Oh. Yeah, saying that she wasn't just discovered, because that's too easy of a thing. She worked very hard, like every other actor and actress, to, like, break into the industry. Yeah. So... I don't know if she just started that because there was quotes of her saying that. I don't know. I don't know. But regardless, somehow she was seen by a William R. Wilkerson, who was the publisher of a Hollywood reporter at the time. And with the malt shop story of her getting the soda, apparently William was, quote, attracted to her beauty and physique and asked if she was interested in being in films, to which she apparently replied to him, I'll have to ask my mother first. Mildred gave permission, and Lana was directed by William to reach out to agent Zeppo Marks. In December of that year, Zeppo connected with film director Marvin or Mervin Leroy, and Lana was then signed to a $50 weekly contract with Warner Bros. on February 22nd of 1937. She was then suggested by Leroy to undergo the stage name of Lana Turner, which we see a lot of old Hollywood Telling people to have stage names, yeah. Which, eventually, she liked it so much, I guess, that she legally changed her name to that years later. Um, I'm not going to go into, like, every single one of her films, because, geez, there's so many. There are a few of the movies that are kind of a big, important thing in her life, so I'll mention a few of them. But her first film debut was in Leroy's They Won't Forget, which came out in 1937. She was only on screen for a few minutes, Um, and William, the guy who just, quote, discovered her, soon wrote in the Hollywood Reporter that her performance was, quote, worthy of more than a passing note, end quote. And the film also coined her the nickname of Sweater Girl. (laughs) Do you want to know why? Was she wearing a sweater? She was wearing a sweater that fit her (laughs) body tightly and accentuated her breasts. Hmm. And so everybody was just like, oh, did you see that Sweater Girl in that one movie? Jesus. Didn't she, did she like the way the sweater fit her? God. I know. Gross. Men are pigs. At the time, she was fucking 16, and Ooh. we're sexualizing this girl, and it's gross. Fucking disgusting. Um, very fittingly, Lana publicly detested the nickname, and she was even embarrassed when watching the preview of the film because she had, quote, never seen myself walking before. It was the first time I was conscious of my body, end quote. Totally. Have you ever watched yourself walk? I've never watched myself walk. I hate it. I've watched myself march. Ooh, I hate. Like my nope. Or like watch yourself run. Oh Oh, my god, that's the worst. I would rather die. I'm not. Oh, like watching film for sports. Oh, I wouldn't even pay attention to like the actual things in the games I was doing. I would pay attention to how fucking weird I run. (laughs) Little chicken. It was weird. Little chicken. I just know. No, I don't know. I don't want to watch myself do anything, so that'd be great. 
Oh, so after that, she was in another film, which was a comedy, and ended up leaving Warner Bros. later that year. Leroy was hired as an executive at MGM and asked for Warner Bros. to let Lana go with him. And Warner believed she wasn't going to amount to anything, so they were just kind of like, cool, whatever, saves us $50 a week, you know? Um, Lana got hired at MGM for $100 a week, so... Pretty hefty pay raise there. Yeah. In 1938, while filming Love Finds Andy Hardy, Lana went back to school with the help of a social worker and graduated from high school that year. Super cool. Yeah. Soon after that film, there were connections from Lana to the famous Jean Harlow, who had died only six months before Lana joined MGM. She was, because of that connection, she was still seen as a sex symbol and still not an adult. Bummer. So, yeah. Um, she... Continued to do several films and projects between then and on February of 1940, Lana eloped with a 28-year-old band leader, Artie Shaw, who was her co-star in Dancing Co-Ed. They got married only after their second date, and they eloped in Las Vegas. Wow. Yeah. Unfortunately, the marriage only lasted for four months, and this led concerns to MGM about her impulsive behavior. So... But at least she was, I think, 19. <laughs> so at least it was yeah. legal. <laughs> She's an adult. She can do what she wants. Whatever. So in the spring of that year after they divorced, Lana found out she was pregnant, and she ended up having an abortion. The In the press, it stated that she was being hospitalized for exhaustion. But Artie, her ex now, um, treated Lana like a, quote, untutored blonde savage and took no pains to conceal his opinion end quote so he seems like a jerk yep big fat jerk because she's not untutored she went and got her high school diploma yep even after she started being an actress it's fine arnie um one of her most noted roles was in zeke filled girl which was in 1941 this is the first role that lana recalled she actually had an interest in acting this role also raised her weekly salary from $100 to $1,500, as well as a trailer and a makeup artist. Hmm. Yeah. Her co-star in the film was Judy Garland, who was, after that, the filming of the movie, a lifelong friend to Lana, and so much so that they lived next to each other in the 1950s. They were like BFFs. Sick. Um, so then came World War II. Ruh-roh. Ruh-roh. Uh, Lana was seen as more of a pinup girl during this time, with her image painted across the noses of U.S. fighter planes that had the name of Tempest Turner on them. Lana did some pretty amazing things when it came to this time and embarked on a 10-week war bond tour where she promised kisses to the highest war bond payers. One man even bought one for $50,000. Good lord. Yep. At the end of the tour, she had sold $5.25 million in war bonds. Wow. That's a lot of money. For back then, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Oh, man. So even during the war, Lana made appearances at U.S. troop events. I imagine, like, Mrs. Maisel. That's Mm -hmm. what I picture in my head. Um, Even at area bases she was at. And she admitted to friends that of all the things that she did during the wartime, visiting the hospital wards of injured soldiers was the most difficult. And well, I yeah. can fucking imagine, because yeah. they probably have half their faces blown off. Yeah. And she's trying to console them and also not look at them like their horrific injuries are horrific. Right. <laughs> oh, man. But, I mean, I think that's great that she did those things during that time. I mean, 
I guess during wartime, you kind of do whatever you can. So in July of 1942, Lana was at a dinner party where she met her next husband, who is an actor slash restaurateur named Joseph Stephen Crane, and he goes by Stephen. Like her first marriage, she eloped in Las Vegas and um, had their marriage annulled four months later when Lana found out he wasn't divorced from his previous marriage. So, cringe. In March of 1943, Lana remarried Steve after she discovered in November of the year before that she was pregnant with his baby. So... They remarried, tried to, like, make the best of the situation, and at the time of her pregnancy, she found out that she had Rh-negative blood, which caused fetal anemia and made it difficult to carry a child to term. Um, Fun fact, only 15% of the U.S. population has this blood type, though she was urged by doctors to have therapeutic abortion to avoid complications that would threaten her own life if she managed to carry the child to term and give birth. She said, fuck you, I am going to give birth to this baby. And she did it. Hmm. Her daughter, Cheryl, was born July 25th, 1943, but not without complications. Because of Lana's blood condition, Cheryl had a near fatal... Are you ready for this? Yep. Erythroblastosis fatalis. Yep. Um, According to my PhD, which is uh, also known as Google, it is a condition that develops in the fetus around birth where a type of antibody is passed from mom into the placenta, and um, those antibodies in the baby attack antigens on the red blood cells that break down and start destroying cells. This can lead to many complications um, that are mild to severe, even being fetal death and heart failure. But thankfully, Cheryl survived, so that's good. In August of 1944, Lana divorced Steve because of gambling and unemployment reasons, and she spent the rest of that year helping to support the presidential race for none other than Franklin D. Roosevelt. Oh, there we go. Yep. I was going to say his middle name, but then I realized I didn't know it. Delano. Delano? Yep. I was going to say Delanor. Nope. I was close. Ish. Ish. Uh, so, during the filming of Green at Dolphin Street, Lana started to have an affair with fellow actor Tyrone Power, who she thought was the love of her life. And she will even say later in her life that he was, like, the one that got away. Like, he was the one. Um, but he was married at the time. She found out that she was pregnant in the fall of 1947 with his child and ended up having an abortion. She also, during this time, had affairs with famous people such as Howard Hughes and Frank Sinatra. Wow. Yeah. In late 1947, Lana met and started dating Henry J. Topping Jr., who went by Bob. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Like, quite a name, and then you just choose Bob. He was a millionaire socialite whose brother was an owner of the New York Yankees. He proposed to Lana, and they were married in April of 1948. Unfortunately, in 1949, Lana discovered she was pregnant again and went into premature labor, but the baby was stillborn. Fuck. Yeah, it would have been a little baby boy. Um, Lana kind of, during these years of filmmaking, didn't like 90% of the script she was being handed because she felt more like an like eye candy. Uh, than getting roles for her acting, so she struggled with that. And unfortunately, even after ex- after expressing these wants for better roles to MGM, they she, they reminded her what made money. 
So mm-hmm. that's great. Um, Lana is also known during this time for suffering from chronic depression over her career and had financial problems, so much so that she was facing bankruptcy. Damn. Yeah. And she attempted to kill herself, trigger warning, in September of 1951. She uh, was, she ended up slitting her wrists in a locked bathroom and she was only saved by her business manager, Benton Cole, who broke down the bathroom door and called for emergency services. Fuck. Yeah. In 1952, Lana had another affair with co-star Fernando Lamas while filming her second musical. How's that spelled? Lamas? L-A-M-A-S. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Fernando Lamas. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's not L-L. <laughs> it's just a single L. <laughs> I would have said Yamas. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, say Yamas. <laughs> Uh, llamas. <laughs> um, her, they met during her filming of second musical, The Merry Window. She ended her relationship with Fernando after he physically assaulted her. Eek. That's literally what I put in my notes. Eek. Thank you. <laughs> this incident caused for Fernando to lose his contract with MGM after they finished filming. Good. In December 1952, Lana divorced Bob and stated it was due to his excessive drinking and gambling. I wonder if people back then just really had big gambling issues. Probably. Probably. That was, there was nothing else to do. There was no Netflix. What are you going to do if you can't watch Netflix? Gamble. Go play poker. Oh. Obviously. Obviously. In September of 1953, Lana married... Dur- or, I'm sorry, actor Lex Barker, who had been, they had been dating since the summer of 1952, which was, I don't know, timeline-wise, before she divorced Bob. Um, but that's fine. Whatever makes her happy. Mind you, between all these dates, she's doing, like, three to five films a year. So she's been busy. I'm just, like, I'm trying not to talk about all of her movies, you know? In February of 1956, after 18 years with MGM, they didn't renew her contract. Yeah, so... A lot of productions with Lana had been a flop recently in the past few years. Uh, I think it was kind of, it was going to happen regardless because of how she felt about the scripts and how right. they were like, well, you're going to do it anyways. And she's just like, yep. okay, well, I'm just going to not Either fucking care. She was going to not renew or they were. Right. Yeah. So they were like, we're going to hand it to the lady. So she stated to a reporter later that she was glad oh my gosh she was glad to now be a quote free agent and no longer had to beg for a decent story to act in so Fair. i know but at the time of her termination she had earned mgm more than 50 million dollars wow yeah so you're welcome in 1956, Lana discovered she was pregnant with Lex's child, but sadly again gave birth to a stillborn baby Fuck. girl seven months into pregnancy. Fuck. I know. July 1957, Lana divorced from Lex after Cheryl stated that he was regularly, trigger warning, molesting and raping her during the marriage. She was 14 at the time and 10 when they got married. So four years wow. of these actions, which is awful. In a memory recounted by Cheryl, Lana confronted Lex about the accusations and eventually held a gun to him and forced him out of the home. Fuck. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I don't blame her if I found out somebody was doing that to my child. Mm -hmm. Best believe I'm gonna fucking... I wouldn't say kill them, but make them fucking scared. Yep. But I would also call the cops. Then in December 1957, a film had released... That Lana was a lead in. It was called Peyton Place, and it was filmed by 20th Century Fox. 
This earned her her first and only nomination for an Academy Award for Best Actress. Then in January of 1958, Lana portrayed a female pilot in Paramount Pictures, The Lady Takes a Flyer. It was during filming of this movie that previous spring when she had started to receive flowers and calls on set from a mobster, Johnny Stampanato. Stampanato. Johnny Stampanato. Get it right. But he goes by John Steele, so... (laughs) (laughs) After several gifts from Johnny, Lana was interested and began to casually date. However, apparently she didn't know he was a mobster, and when she learned that information from a friend, she tried to end things with Johnny. He didn't take well to that. No way. As men don't. So over the year, Johnny convinced her to carry on a relationship with him, and... It was just basically unending arguments, physical abuse, and breakups followed by getting back together. So, very, very unhealthy relationship. Lana later claimed that there was once a time where he drugged her only to take naked photos of her while she was passed out to use as blackmail. what the fuck? Yeah. Kind of super fucked. In September of 1957, Johnny went to visit Lana while filming in London for the movie Another Time, Another Place with co-star Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Initially, when he got to London, they were happy, but that was very short-lived and they eventually started fighting. Johnny was suspicious because Lana was not letting him on set and they had a fight over it and he choked her. So, yeah, because of that, Lana was very fearful, rightfully so, and made an agreement with her makeup artist at the time, who was Del Armstrong, to call Scotland Yard in order to have Johnny essentially deported from Europe. Like, get the fuck out of here and don't come back. Johnny, unfortunately, somehow found out about these plans and showed up to set with a gun. And (laughs) literally, at gunpoint, threatened not only Lana, but Sean Connery. I bet he was like, fuck that. In true Sean Connery fashion. Punched him straight in the face, huh? No. <laughs> Even better. He responded to the situation by grabbing the gun out of Johnny's hand and with a swift move, twisted Johnny's wrist. Like, like James fucking Bond. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> to which Johnny, like a true tough guy, just ran off set. He was like, <laughs> my feelings are hurt. I'm a mobster and you just took my gun. Oh, my gosh. Big boy. So <laughs> after this incident, Lana and Dell continued with their plan to meet with the Scotland Yard and they met with two detectives. They went to the house that Lana and Johnny had been staying at and they had him removed from the house and then they boarded a plane back to America. So they at least got him out so she could finish filming. In March 20. 20- Sorry, on March 26, 1958, Lana went to the Academy Awards for her nomination that I previously mentioned for the movie Peyton Place, and she also presented the award for Best Supporting Actor. It was that night when she returned home when Johnny assaulted her because he was upset she didn't have him go with her. She didn't... Wait. Yeah. He wasn't there at the awards with her, basically, and he was back. Okay. On that night, around 8 p.m., Friday, April 4th, Johnny showed up to Lana's home in Beverly Hills. What is with men? I don't know. God. Yeah. They, not surprisingly, started to fight, and Johnny threatened to kill not only Lana, but Cheryl and Lana's mom, Mildred. Most notably, he also threatened to cut up Lana's face in a way to ruin her acting career. Hmm. So, that's great. 
Then Cheryl, who was at the time 15, heard the threats and wanted to go to her mother's defense. This is when Cheryl grabbed a kitchen knife to meet her mother in the room where they were arguing. And I don't know if you can see where this is going, but I can, and I did the research. That's why I can. But according to Lana's testimony, Johnny had died because when Cheryl was walking to join them in the room to defend her, um, Lana was showing Johnny out of the room when Cheryl was coming into the room, and he got stabbed by the knife. Oh, fuck. Yeah. What are the odds? Yeah, what are the odds? <laughs> um... So, because it was in Cheryl's hand and it got into Johnny's stomach. <laughs> Lana goes on to say that they, at first she thought that the way that Johnny had reacted, that Cheryl had punched him, but then he fell to the ground and she saw the blood and was like, oh. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, right. Right. But Cheryl's main claim was that Johnny just walked into the knife. I don't know how you could get enough pressure unless you were, like, pushed into a knife. I don't really... I've never been stabbed, so... Same. I don't know. We'll see. Hard to we say. can test that out later. Uh, okay. um, <laughs> this incident obviously became a huge media frenzy because Lana was one of, like, the biggest female actresses at the time. Yeah. And there was an inquest that followed, obviously, on April 12th of 1958 that year. After 25 minutes of deliberation... The jury found the killing of Johnny to have been justifiable homicide. What? <laughs> yes. Because of the fact that Lana was being savagely beaten by Johnny at the time, that it was kind of like her life or his life. Hmm. And it, I guess it was like an early form of self-defense. Yeah. Yeah. And did they, ha they had to have self-defense back then. That is like a defense, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Anyways. Um... But due to Cheryl being a teen, she was still uh, a temporary ward of the court until April 24th when juvenile court had its own hearing held. And during this, the judge had concerns over Cheryl not getting, quote, proper parental supervision. And because of this, she was released in the custody of Mildred and was ordered to have regular visits to a psychiatrist with her parents. Hmm. Yeah, so I'm kind of wondering what other, like, problems yeah. were going on, because, I mean, it seems like she was a troubled girl, that if, like, her father, or not her father, her mom's boyfriend is, like, beating her up, her first <laughs> reaction is to get a knife and, like, solve the issue. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That seems a bit extreme to me. Um, but after the trials, Johnny's family filed a wrongful death suit for 7500 wait, no. $750,000 in damages um, against both Lana and Steve, which is Cheryl's birth yeah, dad. Yeah. So it's like, what does he have to do with this? Right. Why are you... What? <laughs> he wasn't there. Um, but during the suit, Johnny's son alleged that Lana was the one that actually killed him, and Cheryl just took the blame to protect her mom. They During the suit, Johnny's son... Um, which, okay, sorry, to go back to the Cheryl protecting her mom and Lana is actually the one that did it, that is a very popular theory, and that's basically what everybody sticks to, but that's never been confirmed nor denied okay. by anybody involved, which is Lana and Cheryl. <laughs> In May of 1962, the suit had eventually settled out of court for a measly $20,000. <laughs> yeah. Much lower. That's what's reported, so I'm sure it might have been more, it might have been less, but that's what's reported. Um... 
Legally, Lana and Cheryl obviously were exonerated for any wrongdoing of the death of Johnny, but due to Lana's public fame and the suit that Johnny's family filed, people obviously had some opinions, and this didn't really do well for her career. No way. Yeah, so it kind of hurt her in some roles, but she continued to try to act. Fun fact, the relationship between Johnny and Lana actually inspired a novel um, written by Harold Robbins titled Where Love Has Gone, and it also has a film adaptation. Hmm. So that would be interesting to see, I guess. Yeah. Um, So the first film that she took after the incident was a remake of the movie Imitation of Life. The first day of filming, she had a panic attack. Oh. Yeah. And her co-star, Juanita Moore, uh, remembered Lana crying for three days on set after the death of Juanita's character in a movie. Oh. Yeah. So she apparently was very affected by Johnny's death. But the movie ended up being a huge success. A lot of the reviews that I were reading said that, like, this was Lana's, like, best emotional performance. And it's like, (laughs) it's because she was fucking losing her mind. Yeah. She, like related to it so much i guess and so much so that people later connected the plots of two of lana's films that she starred in the Peyton place that got her the uh nomination for best actress and the most recent one that i just talked about the imitation of life they paralleled basically lana's personal life both of them have the same plot line of a troubled and complicated relationship between a single mother and a teenage daughter hmm yeah so That might have also fed into it. But during this time, Cheryl had taken a brave leap of faith, and she came out to Lana and Steve as a lesbian. Oh. Yeah. So they ended up being supportive of her. However, she still had her struggles and would run away from home, and the media often wrote about how she was rebellious. Lana worried Cheryl was experiencing trauma from the death of Johnny and sent Cheryl to an institute of living in Hartford, Connecticut. And I don't know if you guys can guess that or not, but it's a psychiatric facility. Hmm. Yeah, that's what we do when we can't care for people. Send them off. So uh, up to ninth, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> up to the year 1970, um, Lana married three more times, all of them uh, ending in divorce. She made a statement that she had a goal of, quote, one husband and seven children, but it ended, it turned out to be the other way around, end quote. Oof. Yeah, I know, poor thing. Lana continued to do, do films and even theater all the way up to 1980, where she made her last feature film appearance in Witch's Brew. Starting in the eight, I'm sorry, starting in the 80s, it is becoming more noticeable that Lana was suffering from an alcohol addiction that had originally started in the 50s. So she'd been struggling for 30, 30 years. years. Yeah. Yikes. Her final on-screen performance would be in 1985 on an episode of The Love Boat. And in September 1982, Lana even had an autobiography called Lana, The Lady, The Legend, The Truth. Like most during that time, Lana was also an avid smoker, so much that her time with MGM, they basically photoshopped or airbrushed cigarettes out of her hand in pictures. Yeah. When she was in her 60s, Lana apparently quit drinking due to her health, but wasn't able to kick the smoking habit, and in 1992, she was diagnosed with throat cancer. Oh. Yeah. She had surgery to remove the cancer, but it ended up already being in her jaw and lungs. 
She then started radiation therapy and claimed to be in remission in early 1993, only for it to return in July of 1994. Uh, in September of 1994, while bound to a wheelchair for most of the event due to her health, Lana made her first public, or I'm sorry, her final public appearance at the San Sebastian International Film Festival in Spain, where she accepted a Lifetime Achievement Award. In June, or I'm sorry, on June 29th of 1995, at the age of 74, Lana ended up dying from cancer with her daughter at her side. However, Cheryl was just a little bit upset when she uh, got the information of Lana's will because the majority of Lana's estate was left to her maid, Carmen Lopez Cruz. Oh. And apparently this was because Lana, or Carmen had been with her for 45 years and cared for her during her declining health. Though Cheryl did get $50,000 and inherited some personal items from her mom, she challenged the will, though Carmen said that the majority of the estate was consumed with probate costs, legal fees, and medical expenses, so was it really worth it? You know? No. No. Um, historians recognize Lana as one of the most glamorous film stars of all times. All times. <laughs> all the times. <laughs> all the times. Um, something that has been mentioned in her life even after... Our, like, before she died and after she died. So it's, like, something that, like, wasn't like, ah, she's gone now. She was so good. Yeah. Um, historians also mentioned that unlike other film stars that were females, Lana wasn't hated by female fans. Which, apparently, a large part of that fan base later in her years were primarily women. Yeah. And I think that's interesting to think that being a female actress or represent. Or, like, I don't know, just a famous woman in Hollywood. You're just automatically resented by other women. Right. I think it's because of the... I don't know. Where I think, unfortunately, we are raised to hate other women. Because we're raised to say, don't, like, we're not jealous of her. Like, she, my man is just, like, looking at her. You know what I mean? I don't know. I think that we should stop hating each other and start... Lifting each other up. I don't know. Totally. Her legacy continues after her death as she has been referenced in films as well as dedications and other art forms, such as a poem by Frank O'Hara called Lana Turner has collapsed. And in character in James Ellroy's 1990 novel, L.A. Confidential. She has been referenced in songs by some most famously being Frank Sinatra. Mm. Makes sense. Uh, there's something that I read that said that he had told people that he had never had a lover like Lana. And it's hmm. like, oh my god, shut up. You fucked every girl in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. There's gotta be one best one. I know. I guess it was Lana. Uh, she was also the source of the stage name for someone who we know as Lana Del Rey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Lana has a mural in the auditorium of Hollywood High School, which is her alma mater. Oh. Yeah. She also was a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and in 2002, she was named by Complex Magazine as the eighth most infamous actresses of all time. Hmm. Yeah. Infamous. Infamous. Okay. Probably because of the Johnny thing. <laughs> Probably. Probably. Probably because of the murder. Yeah, the murder. So, she has a filmography of, oh, like, I think when I counted it, it was exactly 60 films slash TV shows slash theater appearances wow. slash musicals. She was in the... She was in uh, Hollywood for 19... Oh, my gosh. 
She did this basically from 1937 to 1985, which is a 48-year yeah. career. Wow. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So she had to do like at least one or two films a year, but I feel like that beginning, Probably she really more. packed them in. Yeah. But then like as time well, went on, I mean, especially after like MGM fired her, yeah. she had to like figure it out on her own. Yep. And I am going to end by a quote of Lana's where she says, my life has been a series of emergencies. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, Lana. It has been. That's awesome. Yeah. Good work. Thanks. So what did you think? What did you think about the Johnny thing in particular? Um, f- felt convenient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think uh, the justified homicide makes sense. Right. Once they, I mean, I don't know the details of it, like what they found out that made them go to that conclusion over it being an accident. Yeah. But... Yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah, it definitely works. I think, I don't know, I kind of steer more towards the direction of Lana doing it and then Cheryl walking in and being like, oh my god. I'll take this. Like, <laughs> Yeah, like, you, you have too much yeah. to lose, mom. Like, you can't, yeah. you can't do this. Totally. Um, but I also kind of think that, like, not like it was planned, but I think that he f- was fucking tormenting with mm-hmm. her. It reminded me a lot of our last story with Connie Hopkins, yeah. where he was, like, following her and going to her house and, yeah. like, doing all these things. He held a gun to her fucking head, and Sean Connery on saved her set. life. Yes. Like, on set. Not even, like, in private. Like, no. On set. No. Had no That's fucking upsetting. regards. Yeah. Yes. So, like, she knew, like, it's either I kill him or I'm literally going to die. Yeah. Eventually, so, this is not going to end well. Yeah. So, so I, the only solution that I can think of, because I've tried to break it off, and it just, he keeps coming back. Yep. And it's sad. It's so sad that, like, it has to come to that. Yeah. It makes me sad. Well, I'm just glad that she didn't die. Just saying. No, she had a long and fruitful career. She did. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I was looking up a bunch of pictures of her, yeah. and then her and Sean Connery, and... <laughs> Yeah. She is fucking gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I wish I looked like her. Yeah. Oh my god, I wish I looked like her. <laughs> She's so pretty. She's so pretty. There's a lot of pictures, though, of her with, like, blonde hair and stuff where I was just like, she looks a lot like who Macy's gonna talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm even more interested as to why I didn't find any comparisons between the two in my research. It was always Jean Harlow. Did you find any? Mm-mm. Oh, that's so weird. That was weird. Whatever. I feel like a lot of the actresses at that time, though, like, definitely fit that mold. Yeah. Blonde hair. Pin up. Pretty. Pin up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a good segue. It is a good segue. Um, Yeah, mine is similar. Did not live quite as long. Yeah. Or nearly as long, but, uh, yeah, let's get into it. I'm going to be talking about Marilyn Monroe. Yay! Um, she was born Norma Jean Mortensen at the L.A. County Hospital. On June 30th, nope, June 1st. <laughs> the, June 30th. Three, well, the three, it was supposed to be a, <laughs> an E and yeah, it was yeah, a yeah. three. At the LA County Hospital on June 1st in 1926, her mother was Gladys Pearl Baker. And that's why you find her going also by Norma Jean Baker. Mm. Uh, it just depends on, she kind of switched back and forth between the two. Um, but her given name was Norma Jean Mortensen. 
I feel like Baker's so much easier. Yep. It rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yep. Um, so a little bit about Gladys, her mom. She came from a poor family who migrated to California at the turn of the century. She married a guy named John Newton Baker, who abused her to high heavens. Oh, my God. Uh, and was nine years older than her. And the two of them had two kiddos named Robert and Bernice. So Marilyn actually had two step or half-siblings. Yeah. Um... And she actually didn't know about Bernice until she was an adult. Um, Gladys filed for divorce and got and filed for sole custody in 1923, but then Baker ended up kidnapping the kiddos afterwards and moved to Kentucky, and then they just lived there with him. What the fuck? Yeah. So, yeah, Marilyn, like I said, wasn't told she had any siblings and didn't meet Bernice until she was an adult. That's crazy. Gladys married Martin Edward Mortensen, but they separated a few months later, and Marilyn's father is actually unknown, and they don't know if it was Baker or Mortensen just because of the way the timeline worked out, but she most often used Baker as her last name. Gladys was mentally and financially unprepared to raise Marilyn on her own, and ended up placing her with evangelical Christian foster parents in the rural town of Hawthorne. Um, so Gladys visited Marilyn on the weekends until the summer of 1933, and then in 1933 she ended up being able to buy a house in Hollywood, like a really small house, and moved now seven-year-old Marilyn in with her. Um, in this house they had, like, borders, so it was kind of like if, it's kind of like if we had somebody renting out a room at this house. Oh. Yeah. Gladys had a major mental breakdown in 1934 and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Oh, no. She spent several months in a rest home, and then she was committed to the Metropolitan State Hospital and spent the rest of her life in and out of hospitals, rarely in contact with Marilyn at all. Oh, my gosh. Um, Marilyn, at that time, became a ward of the state, and her mom's friend, Grace Goddard, ended up taking responsibility for both her and her mother's affairs and estate and all that. Marilyn's living situation changed very frequently over the next four years. Uh, she continued living with the boarders that were in the house um, that I talked about, but was sexually abused by oh, them no. during this time. She developed a stutter and became very, very introverted at this time. Um, in the summer of 1935, Grace placed Marilyn in the Los Angeles Orphans Home. So she just got rid of her. Yep. They ended up encouraging Grace to take Marilyn back, uh, since she would likely do better in a family, but unfortunately Grace's husband, and she did this, but Grace's husband um, molested her. She then went through several foster families until 1938. Then she moved in with Grace's aunt, Anna Lauer. She went to school. Uh, She was pretty mediocre at school, but she was really, really good at writing, and she was a part of the school newspaper. Um, Anna ended up having some health issues, and Marilyn had to move back in with Grace and her husband, the guy who was molesting her. During high school, Grace's husband's job relocated him to West Virginia, but California child protection laws wouldn't allow the family to take Marilyn out of the state. Oh my god. So, she ended up marrying their neighbor's 21-year-old son, a factory worker named James Doherty, uh, just after her 16th birthday. She ended up dropping out of high school, became a housewife, and was super-duper bored. Oh. He um, was a merchant marine, 
1944, he was shipped out to the Pacific for World War II. He stayed there for the majority of the next two years. And during that time, Marilyn moved in with his parents, so her in-laws, and started a job at the Radio Plane Company, which was a munitions factory during World War II. Ooh. Mm-hmm. She met a photographer whose name was David Conover, who was sent to the factory to shoot, like, morale-boosting photos of all the women who were working there. Yeah. And her photos weren't used in that, but he liked her so much that she quit her job. She quit that job and began modeling for him and his photographer friends. Seems sketchy, doesn't it? Yes. I know. That's what I thought, too. But (laughs) That's um, not fun. She ended up moving out and on her own, got her own place. She signed a contract with the Blue Book Model Agency in 1945, and James did not like this. He wanted her to be a housewife, and that's it. Yeah. Very unsupportive. Um, a lot like Lana, the modeling agency figured she was a way better pinup uh, than she would be like a high fashion model, so she was mostly featured in advertisements and in men's magazines. She ended up straightening her curly hair and dyed it beach, beach, uh, dyed it bleach blonde to make herself, quote, more employable. Oh, yeah. Uh, in 1946, she had appeared on 33 magazine covers. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. She signed an acting contract with an agency in 1946. Uh, This was in June of 1946. After that, she had um, an unsuccessful interview with Paramount and a bad screen test with 20th Century Fox, but they ended up signing a six-month contract with her so that she wouldn't go to their rival studio. Oh. So she was, like, good enough to maybe get on with them, but... It's like, you're too pretty to get rid of. (sighs) Yeah, basically. She ended up selecting the stage name Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn came from Broadway star Marilyn Miller, and then uh, Monroe was her mother's maiden name. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. She divorced Doherty in September of 1946, because, again, he was not supportive at all. And you'll find this is a pattern with Marilyn. Like, if she's with dudes and they're, like, not into what she's doing, she kicks them to the curb. Good, which I think fuck cool. yeah. She spent uh, the first six months at Fox being sent to acting, singing, and dancing classes and learning the filmmaking process. Her contract was renewed in February of 1947, and she got her first small parts in some films, uh, a lot like Lana. Her teachers, like her acting teachers, thought that even though she was really, really enthusiastic about it, she loved acting, she loved filmmaking, all that, um, they thought she was way too shy and insecure, and Fox ended up not renewing her contract in August of 1947. Oh, no. So... She returned to modeling and did a whole bunch of, like, odd jobs at film studios, but she was determined to make it as an actress and continued acting classes on her own. Uh, She also networked a lot. Uh, She would go to a bunch of producers' offices. She would become friends with gossip colonists, um, entertained influential male guests at studio functions, and started boinking a Fox executive, Joseph M. Schneck, Boinking? Shink. Boinking. Okay. I'm glad that this <laughs> is the that you're going to. <laughs> what do you want me to say? Sleeping with? Yeah, fucking. Okay. Uh, she started sleeping with a Fox exe- executive uh, who persuaded the head executive of Columbia Pictures to sign her in March of 1948. So that was dope. Her look was modeled after Rita Hayworth. 
I don't know who that is. You should Google her while we're doing this. Uh, I will in a second. My okay. arm is occupied. Got it. Got it. Um, her only film at the studio was a low-budget musical called Ladies of the Chorus. And it was uh, her first starring role, which was as a chorus girl who was courted by a wealthy man. That contract was not renewed in September of 1948. So again, she returned to modeling. She became friends and also a mistress of a guy named Johnny Hyde, who was the vice president of the William Morris Agency. And through him, she ended up landing a bunch of like small roles in a bunch of different films. Uh, she gained some notoriety from these. Landed a seven-year contract with 20th Century Fox in December of 1950, although Fox put in the contract that they could opt out of it at, at any time. Yeah. That's such bullshit. I know. Johnny was, like, instrumental in helping her get that contract, and he ended up dying just a couple days after she signed it, and what? she was totally des- devastated by it. In March of 1952, Wait, Marilyn... how did he die? He was old. Oh. Yeah. Um... In March of 1952, Marilyn found herself at the center of a scandal. It was revealed publicly that she had posed nude for a calendar in 1949. The studio learned about it, and she stressed to them, like, yo, this is because you guys dropped my contract. I had to make, like, I have to make ends meet, and I was modeling. I modeled nude. Yeah. And uh, that, because she was, like, very public about that, and why she did it, it gained her a ton of public sympathy and increased interest in all of her films. Good. Dope. Uh, featured shortly after on the cover of Life magazine, which is pretty cool. Dang. And then it turned her even more so into a sex symbol. So she was already there. Yeah. But this, like, jacked that right up. Because they were like, oh, I didn't know they were nudes of Marilyn yep. Monroe. <laughs> yep. Um, even with this new image, or... Increased image, I guess. Uh, she wanted to show more of her acting range instead of just being the dumb, sexy blonde in every single film she was cast in. She was in the movie Don't Bother to Knock. Uh, she starred as a mentally disturbed babysitter, which showed her abilities to act in darker roles, but ended up having mixed reviews from critics. During this period, she gained a reputation for being difficult to work with, which definitely didn't improve as her career went on. Uh, She was late a lot, or she just wouldn't show up, and so it would waste. Like, they'd have to pay everybody who showed up, Yeah, but they couldn't film. So they lost a day of filming, but had to pay everybody who did show up. Uh, She struggled to remember her lines, and she demanded several retakes consistently until she was happy with her performance. Um, due to the stress and anxiety that she found while acting, she started using barbiturates, um, amphetamines, and alcohol. She continued to act in several movies. Like, same thing with Launcher. Like, I'm not gonna go through every single movie. There's so many. Yeah, literally. she, same thing, she packed so many movies into these, uh, just a few years that she was in the, in the industry. She made a debut to television with the Jack Benny Show and was eventually listed in the annual Top 10 Money-Making Stars poll in both 1953 and 1954. Hugh Hefner featured her on the cover and as a centerfold in the very first Playboy issue. No shit. Without her consent. Oh. So the photo from the cover was from a Miss America pageant parade that she was in and then the centerfold was one of the nudes from 1949. And he did not have her permission? What a fucking asshole. Yeah. Yep. 
So Monroe, we're into like 1954 and 1955-ish. Monroe had become one of 20th Century Fox's biggest stars, but her contract had not changed since 1950. So she was paid far less than other stars of her stature and couldn't choose her projects. Yeah. Which is lame. Uh, Her attempts to appear in films that would not focus on her as a pinup had been thwarted by the studio head executive who had strong... A strong personal dislike of her and did not think she would earn the studio as much revenue in any other types of roles beyond what she was doing. So in January of 1954, he suspended her when she refused to begin shooting yet another musical comedy that she didn't want to be in called The Girl in Pink Tights. This was front page news and Monroe immediately took action to counter that negative publicity that she was getting for being fired, basically. Yeah. Um, so that was shitty. January 14th, though, of that year, uh, jo- she and Joe DiMaggio got married. He-, he was a super famous, I think, pitcher for the New York Yankees, and he had just retired. So gotcha. he was just... He was coming down from his fame. She was going up in hers. So they got married at San Francisco City Hall, and then they traveled to Japan, combining a honeymoon with his business trip. Lame. From Tokyo, she traveled alone to Korea, where she participated in a USO show, um, singing songs from her films for over 60,000 U.S. Marines over a four-day period. Uh, After returning to the U.S., she was awarded Photoplay's Most Popular Female Star Prize. Dang. Yep. She ended up settling with Fox after that whole shenanigans about uh, being suspended. She settled with the promise of a new contract, a bonus of $100,000, and a starring role in the film adaptation of the Broadway success The Seven-Year Itch. Mm-hmm. You might recognize that one. Nope. Okay. After filming for The Seven-Year Itch wrapped up in November of 1954, she left Hollywood for the East Coast where... She and photographer Milton Green founded their own production company, which is pretty dope. Dang. Marilyn Monroe Productions. Uh, An action that has later been called instrumental in the collapse of the studio system, which is dope. Damn. So she stated that she was tired of the same old sex roles and asserted that she was no longer under contract to Fox as they hadn't fulfilled their duties, such as paying her the promised bonus. Uh, this began a year-long legal battle between her and Fox in January of 1955, and the press largely ridiculed Monroe, uh, and she ended up being parodied in the Broadway play Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter in 1955, which her lookalike Jane Mansfield played a dumb actress who starts her own production company. And that fucked. That's so annoying. It's like being on Saturday Night Live, but ten times worse. Yeah, literally. <laughs> Um, she continued her relationship with DiMaggio despite the an ongoing divorce process, unfortunately. Um, she also dated actor Marlon Brando and playwright Arthur Miller. You know, do you recognize those names? No. No? No. When you say Marlon Brando, I think Brad Mondo. Oh, no. Quite opposite. I, it's just Marlon Brando. Brad Mondo. <laughs> He probably took his name from... I don't think so. I think that's his real name. (laughs) Marlon Brando. Brando Mondo. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Uh, She had first been introduced to Miller in the early 1950s, and the affair between uh, Marlon... 
Jesus Christ. <laughs> the affair between Monroe and Miller became increasingly serious after October in 1955 when her divorce was finalized and he had separated from his wife. The studio, her studio, like people she had hired to run her studio, were urging her to please end it. Um, <laughs> and be- what? The, the production company? No, no, no. To end her relationship oh. with Miller. Because he was being investigated by the FBI for allegations of communism <gasps> and had been subpoenaed by the House of Un-American Activities Committee, but Monroe refused. What? So the relationship led to the FBI opening a fo- file on her. Oh, no. By the end of the year, Monroe and Fox signed a new seven-year contract because her production company wasn't able to finance films alone, uh, so they had to kind of have these it. Yeah. And the studio was eager to have her back. Fox would pay her 400000 to make four films and granted her the rights to choose her own projects, directors, and cinematographers. Nice. Dope. Uh, she would also be free to make one film with MMP, which is her... Marilyn Monroe Productions, uh, per each completed film for Fox. So I think that's a pretty good deal. That's a pretty good deal, starting out, yeah. Um, On June 29th, Monroe and Arthur Miller were married at the Westchester County Court in White Plains, New York. Two days later, they had a Jewish ceremony at the home of Kay Brown, who was Miller's literary agent, in Wacabuck, New York, and with the marriage, Monroe converted to Judaism. Which her. led all of Egypt to pan- ban all of her films. Severely anti-Semitic. Oh my god. Turns out. Dang. Um, she had an ectopic pregnancy in mid-1957 and a miscarriage a year later. And these problems were most likely linked to endometriosis, which she was found to have. <gasps> oh, she was no. also briefly hospitalized due to a barbiturate overdose. Um, as she and her business partner could not settle their disagreements over MMP, Monroe bought his share of the company, so she owned it outright. Dang. She returned to Hollywood in July of 1958 to act opposite of Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis in Billy Wilder's comedy on gender roles, Some Like It Hot. Do you recognize that name? Nope. Oh my god. Really? I know. Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, she considered the role of um, Sugarcane another dumb blonde role, but accepted it due to Miller's encouragement and the offer of 10% of the film's profits on top of her standard pay. The film's difficult production has since become legendary. Uh, Monroe demanded dozens of retakes, did not remember her lines or act as directed. Uh, her co-star, Tony Curtis, famously stated that kissing her was like, quote, Kissing Hitler. Oh my god. Due to the number of retakes. So. Oh my god. Yeah. After Some Like It Hot, she participated in several other films, which she wasn't super thrilled about, but needed to complete to be in line with her contract with Fox. Yeah. Arthur Miller had a habit of rewriting scenes in her movies, which was obviously an overstep on his part. Um, and then Marilyn also had an affair with one of her co-stars during this time. Um, the last film that she completed was John Huston's The Misfits. Uh, fun fact, her first ever film was also John Huston's. Um, which Miller had written to provide her with a dramatic role. Okay. She played a recently divorced woman 
who becomes friends with a with three aging cowboys played by Clark Gable, Eli Wallach, and Montgomery Clift. Filming in the Nevada desert between July and November of 1960 was, again, difficult. Yeah. Um, Monroe and Miller's marriage was effectively over at this point, and he had begun a new relationship with uh, one of his set photographers, and Monroe disliked that he had based her role in that movie partly on her life and thought it inferior to the male roles. She also struggled with Miller's habit of rewriting scenes the night before filming. As one would. Yeah. Her health was also failing. She was in pain from gallstones. Her drug addiction was so severe that her makeup usually had to be applied while she was still asleep. uh, Oh my god. Under the influence of the Barbos. And in August, filming was halted for her to spend a week in in detox, basically. Oh my gosh. However, despite these problems, it was clear that when she was actually filming... The emotions and the acting were intensely real and raw, and her performance was, like, legit. Good. So, there's that. Uh, Monroe and Miller separated after filming wrapped, and she obtained a Mexican divorce. So, they went to Mexico because it was easier, quicker, less expensive than the U.S. in January of 1961. Was that legal? So, if we get married, I can just go to Mexico and get divorced from you? Yep. Cool. Please don't do that, though. It's a, I'm just asking questions. Oh, my God. <laughs> I kid, Oliver. Tell me I kid. <laughs> so, instead of working, she spent the first six months of 1961 preoccupied by health problems. Again, she underwent a cholecystomy, which I think is uh, the surgery for endometriosis. And then she spent four weeks hospitalized for depression helped by ex-husband Joe DiMaggio, whom, uh, with, she rekindled a friendship, and she dated his friend, Frank Sinatra, for oh several Oh my god, months. who hasn't dated Frank Sinatra? Yep. Monroe also permanently moved back to California that year. Uh, she returned to the public eye in the spring of 1962, where she received a world film favorite, Golden Globe, and began to shoot a film for Fox. Fox called Something's Gotta Give. Do you know I've that heard one? I've that one. Oh, okay, thank God. I don't know anything about it, but I've at least heard that. So it was to be co-produced by MMP, directed by George Cooker, and to co-star Dean Martin and Sid Charisse. Uh, days before filming began, Monroe caught sinusitis, so like a sinus infection, and her doctors were like, you guys need to postpone this production, like, she needs to go home. And feel better. Yeah. Fox began it as planned in late April. Anyways. So Monroe was too sick to work for the majority of the next six weeks, but despite confirmations by multiple doctors, they pressured her by alleging... Fox pressured her by alleging publicly that she was faking it. Oh my god. Uh Yeah. On May 19th, she took a break to sing Happy Birthday, Mr. President on stage at President John F. Kennedy's early birthday party at Madison Square Gardens. New York, during the time of his presidency, it's very well known that he was having an affair with Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. There's nothing official on it, obviously. So official records and official sources where I did my research did not say this, but this is like a very, very well-known fact. And then once he was kind of done, he basically passed her off to his brother Robert, which was commonplace for most of the affairs that John F. Kennedy had. What? 
Yeah. He's like, I'm done with you. Just have yep. fun with my brother. Yeah. So she sings Ew. this, like, super sexy version of the happy birthday song to him. Uh, she was wearing a beige, skin-tight dress covered in rhinestones, which she, like, almost quite literally had to be sewn into behind stage before she went on. It was that tight. And, um... Dang. It was very, like, promiscuous because it made her look like she was butt-ass naked singing to the president. Yeah. Jackie Kennedy opted to not go to this party. Poor Jackie. Yep. She's like, I know what's gonna happen and I don't want to be there. Yep. Um, so this was a problem and this was basically when President Kennedy straight up cut ties with her. He was like, ah. He's like, that was great oh, and all, but that's an overstep. Yeah, that's like privacy things. Yep. It's not like something that's going to be filmed. I am the president. Yeah, and the studio had some problems with it, too. So oh, this was no. like really the turning point for her decline. She thought she was doing this really sexy thing and she was going to get publicity for it, as she had with like pretty much every other stunt she pulled. Yeah, and literally. the opposite happened. It was mostly just embarrassing. Uh, she next filmed a scene for Something's Gotta Give, which she swam naked in a swimming pool, and to generate advanced publicity, the press was invited to take photographs. Were later published in Life magazine, which is just straight up, like, exploitation, I think. Yep. It was the first time that a major star had posed nude at the height of their career. Uh, when she was again on sick leave for several days, Fox decided that it couldn't afford to have another film running behind schedule, which this one was because she was sick, and it was already struggling with the rising costs of other projects, so on June 7th, Fox fired Monroe and sued her for $750,000 in damages. She was replaced by Lee Remick, uh, but after Dean Martin refused to make the film without anybody other than Monroe, Fox sued him and shut <laughs> down the film altogether. Oh my god. Uh-huh. Um... How dramatic. The studio blamed Monroe for the film's demise and began spreading negative publicity about her, even alleging that she was mentally disturbed. Okay. They soon Aren't regretted all women. this. Yes, and they went back and renegotiated a new contract with her. My fucking god! I know they're just just get rid of her. Yeah, they're seriously just trying to manipulate her at this point. That's so fucked. Yeah. During her final months, Monroe lived in the Brentwood neighborhood of Los Angeles. Her housekeeper, her housekeeper Eunice Murray, was staying overnight at the home on the evening of August 4th, 1962. Uh, Eunice woke up at around 3 in the morning on August 5th and had some kind of sixth sense that something was wrong. She saw a light from under Monroe's bedroom door but was unable to get a response and found the door was locked. Uh, she then called... I don't know why she didn't call fucking 911. What year was it? 62. It didn't exist. Okay. I don't know why she didn't call somebody. <laughs> she didn't call somebody. She, I think she called the wrong somebody. She called Monroe's... She called the wrong somebody. She called Monroe's psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson, who arrived at the house shortly after, broke into the bedroom through a window, and found Monroe dead in her bed. Monroe's Ugh. physician, Dr. Hyman Engelberg... Arrived around 3.50 in the morning and pronounced her dead at the scene. And then at 4.25, the police department was notified. They should have been notified first. That's what I'm saying. That's weird, right? Yeah, I wouldn't call her psychiatrist. No, it's literally... 
two and a half hours after she was found. Ugh. All right. Nope. An hour and a half. Hour and a half. We're good. Numbers. I mean, um, still, it should have been. It should have been right away. Yeah. She died between 8.30 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. on August 4th. So she had been dead for, you know, 10, a while. Five hours. Yeah. That's, like, crazy. Dead. That's, like, super dead. Like, not coming back to yeah. dead. And the toxicology report showed that the cause of death was acute barbiturate poisoning. Uh, she had eight milligrams per 100 milliliters of solution. So that's, like, the standard how they measure drugs in your system. So I'm just going to say eight milligrams, okay? Of chloral hydrate and 4.5 milligrams of pentobarbital in her blood and 13 milligrams of pentobarbital in her liver. Yeah. So she had taken it a while yeah. prior to that and it had legit gone through her system. Empty medicine bottles were found next to her bed and the possibility that she had accidentally overdosed was ruled out because the dosages that were found in her body were several times over the lethal limit. Dang. The L.A. County Coroner's Office uh, was assisted in their investigation by the L.A. Suicide Prevention Team, who had expert knowledge on suicide. Her doctors stated that she had been, quote, prone to severe fears and frequent depressions with, quote, abrupt and unpredictable mood changes, and had overdosed several times in the past, possibly uh, intentionally. Due to those facts and the lack of any indication of foul play, Deputy Coroner Thomas Noguchi uh, classified her death as a probable suicide. He said probable suicide. You just say suicide. Huh. Um. So that means there's something suspicious there. That's what a lot of people think. Like, normally, if you don't know, then you say you don't know. Right. So. Un- unknown. Um, it's worth... Noting, I believe it was Eunice. Uh, I want to say it was Eunice. Uh, she was interviewed decades later when she was in old, old age. Um, and after her interview, her mic was still hot. And she was heard saying, why in my age am I still having to cover this thing up? No! Mm-hmm. What? It was her. I want to say it was her. I don't have that in writing, though. So, yeah. Just throwing that little nugget in there. Oh, damn. So, uh, Joe DiMaggio was the one to claim her body several days after the morgue had had it, and nobody else came to claim her. <gasps> and that fucked. That's so sad. Yeah. I'd claim her if yeah. we were alive when, yep. back then. He also paid for and planned the entire funeral service and made it incredibly private. Good. Which is good. Um, his biographer states that they were actually about to get remarried before her death, like, no. days. Yeah. Um, and reports, uh, he also reports that Joe's last words before his death were, quote, at least I get to see Marilyn again. Oh my god, that's so sad. I know. I hate that. That's so cute. I know. I know. Oh, Oliver, how cute is that? So now we're going to talk about just a couple of conspiracy theories about her death, which I kind of hinted at before. So a guy named Frank Capel uh, self-published a pamphlet called The Strange Death of Marilyn Monroe in 1964, in which he claimed that her death was part of a communist conspiracy. Uh, He claimed that Monroe and U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy had an affair. True. 
which she took too seriously and was threatening to cause a scandal. Oh, no. Kennedy, therefore, ordered her to be assassinated to protect his career. So, basically, he was in line to be president, if not the next term, but the term after uh, his brother, John, was to be president. Okay. So, he didn't want to fuck that up. Um, Don't do stupid shit. Yep. In addition to accusing Kennedy of being a communist sympathizer, Capel also claimed that many other people close to uh, Monroe, such as her doctors, ex-husband Arthur Miller, were communists. His friend, LAPD Sergeant Jack Clemens, aided him in developing his pamphlet uh, because Clemens became the central source for a lot of different conspiracy theorists. Um he was the first police officer on scene of her death and later made claims that he had not mentioned in the official 1962 investigation, such as alleging that when he arrived at Monroe's house, her housekeeper was washing her sheets and she had a sixth sense that something was wrong. So he talks about all these things that he saw at the scene that he didn't put in his report and now he's alleging, like, were parts of a cover-up. Okay. <laughs> In 1982, um, a private detective named Milo Spiriglio published, quote, Marilyn Monroe Murder Cover-Up, in which he claimed that Monroe had been murdered by Jimmy Hoffa and mob boss Sam Giancana, basing his count um, on, like, a bunch of other conspiracies uh, at the time. He added... <laughs> Statements made by Lionel Grandison, who worked at the L.A. County Coroner's Office at the time of Monroe's death, led to his belief that she had been murdered by the mob. Uh, he claimed that Monroe's body had been extensively bruised, but it, that information had been omitted from the autopsy report, and that he had seen the, quote, red diary that Marilyn supposedly kept with all of her inside knowledge of politics, business, all that stuff from all the people she was sleeping with. She yeah. had all this inside knowledge. And that, quote, red diary was never found. Hmm. Yeah. Um, the authors of this theory uh, demanded that the investigation into Monroe's death be reopened by the authorities, and the LADA uh, actually agreed to review the case, but... A new investigation could not find any evidence to support the murder claims. Um, Grandison was found to not be a reliable witness as he had been fired from the coroner's office for stealing from corpses <gasps> and allegations that Monroe's home was wiretapped by um, the FBI, police, all that were apparently found to be false. I've seen conflicting info on that. But who knows? A lot of people think she was murdered for little details like the amount of pills that she took, the fact that there was no water in her room and the bathroom that connected to her room. Uh, the water was shut off because it was having renovations done. Like, so people are like, wow, would she take that many pills? And from different um, just statements she had made about things she's doing in the future that normally wouldn't happen from somebody that is contemplating ending their life, but who's to say how she was feeling in that moment? Yeah. So, that is Marilyn Monroe. That's crazy. What do you think? I think... I hate to say it, but I feel like the Kennedys just are surrounded with conspiracies, because they were some shady fucks. Yeah. They totally were. Yeah. I don't know, they did some sketchy shit. Apparently that night she was so upset because she was supposed to, quote, meet up with two important men from Washington. 
but they canceled last minute. So people theorize that this is the Kennedy boys that were going to come yeah. over, but we did not. Hmm. How interesting. There was something I was going to say, but I forgot it now. It's okay. not a big deal. <laughs> not a big deal. Cool. Well, that's all I got. Thanks for sharing. I didn't really know anything about Marilyn Monroe. She, it blew me away how many times she was fired and rehired and fired Such and rehired. Bullshit. How many, fo- like, I did not go through every single foster home that she was in, but it right. was countless. Like, right. over and over and going to the orphanage and then going into foster homes and then she talks about how she like didn't have a mom and didn't have a dad and yeah fucking heartbreaking yeah i bet poor thing yeah good for her for making something of it though and standing up for herself totally so yep yeah well um you can find us on instagram at who knew podcast you can find us uh, I mean, you can email us at whonewpodcast666 at gmail.com, and then you can also find us on Patreon. Yep. Who knew podcast? Yep. There we go. That's that. That's that. Thanks, guys. Say bye, Castle. We'll Got a little man. Castle here. He's still here. Sweetie He's such man. a good boy. 